Let me encourage you to turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Luke. So just one book over from Mark where we were reading a moment ago, the Gospel of Luke, and to the 12th chapter, and to the 35th verse. Luke 12, 35, and we'll just read four verses down through verse 38. These are all the words of Jesus. He says, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. Father, we, we want to wait on your Son from heaven, and we want to wait on you this morning to speak to us by your word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to encourage us, to challenge us, to Awaken faith in us to move us to give our lives in service to you and to rejoice in the greatness of your son. So do these things in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. This verse was the subject of one of the questions that was turned in for this past Wednesday's Q&A, and we looked at it briefly then. But as I considered our observance of the Lord's Supper to come this morning, I decided to come back to Luke twelve thirty seven and to think it out with you in a little bit more detail this morning. And verse 37 of Luke 12 comes, of course, within the context of a passage in which Jesus is telling a parable, a story, that reminds us to be ready for his second coming. So here's a group of slaves in verse 36, and their master has gone away for the evening uh, to a wedding reception. And though he may tarry into the night, though it may be dark before he arrives home, his slaves are not to turn into bed. They're not to close up the kitchen for the evening. They're not to change into their pajama pants. They are not to blow out all the lamps in the house, but rather they are to remain awake into the night. They are to keep their lamps Lit, in verse 35, they are to keep watch through the window lattice so that they will not be asleep when he comes, but wide awake and ready to meet him at the door. And, says Jesus to his own slaves, to his own disciples at the beginning of verse 36, be like them, be like them, be dressed in readiness, verse 35, and keep your lamps lit. For as Jesus goes on to say down in verse 40, the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. At an hour that you do not expect. And so you must be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit, he said. Now, 
I don't know about you, but when I think of these sorts of passages in which Jesus is reminding us of the suddenness of his coming, of the unexpectedness of his return, of the need to be ready and alert, when I think about these realities, what usually comes to my mind is the awful consequences of being caught unprepared, of being caught napping, laying down on the job, fooling around when Jesus comes. I've told you more than once, I think, of how, to my shame, my coworkers and I used to shoot baskets with a ball of masking tape when the boss was away from the little retail store at which I worked in high school. Because, after all, he always entered the building through the break room in the back, and there was a buzzer on the break room door so that we always knew he was inside a few seconds before he actually walked out onto the floor. But one day... At a time that we did not expect, he walked right through the front doors of the store to find the assistant manager with the ball poised over his head like Stephen Curry poised to sink a long-range jumper. And I've never forgotten that little picture of what it will be like for many at the second coming in a far more serious matter who are caught unprepared, fooling around, doing their own thing when the master returns. And as I said a moment ago, these are the kinds of truths, this is the kind of snapshot that usually comes to my mind when I think of the suddenness of Christ's return and the need to be on the alert for it. The awful consequences of being caught in our pajamas, being found unprepared. And Jesus, of course, does talk about those consequences, even alluding to them here in this chapter in verse 39. But what I want you to see this morning is that in the parable he gives in the passage that we read in verses 35 through 38, which comes to its zenith at verse 37, this parable is not about the people who are caught lying down on the job and the consequences thereof. This parable is actually about those people who have kept the kitchen open, who have kept on their work aprons, they've kept the lamps on, and they're watching through the windows for their master's return. And this parable is also marvelously about the blessing that will come to those who are awake to the Lord Jesus when he comes again. And so, yes, we need to think about the consequences. We should think about the consequences if we should sleepwalk through this life and be unprepared to meet the returning king. But it is also well and appropriate if we consider the blessings of keeping our lamps lit and being dressed in readiness. It's not simply that you won't be caught off guard. There is positive blessing if you are ready when Christ returns. And if we read verse 37, we'll find that this is Jesus' subject matter in this text, this blessing that comes to those who are ready for his return. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Isn't that a marvelous text of Scripture? Listen to it one more time. Blessed are those slaves whom the Master will find on the alert when He comes. Truly I say to you that He will gird Himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. person asked the question about this text on Wednesday because it is such an astonishing thing to read about Jesus at his second coming waiting on his people like 
someone waiting a table at a banquet. Now let me just say three things about this text this morning, about Christ's second coming as we consider it. First of all, the blessing that Jesus speaks of here comes to those who are alert. The blessing comes to those who are alert. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. And of course, within the context of an ancient household in this parable, alertness in such a situation would connote the household help keeping things like their clothes on and their lamps lit and the windows open, the shutters open so that they can see the master coming, staying up even into the wee hours so as to be able to meet the master at the door. All of those things we read in this text. They are watching, they're waiting, they're keeping alert, they're dressed, the lights are on, and they're watching. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. But this is a parable. It's a story that Jesus is telling from everyday life to illustrate something about our walk and waiting for him. So what does this mean? What does this story have to tell us about our preparedness, our alertness for the return of our master? Jesus pictures what it looks like for the servants in a great household to be alert, but what does it look like in the spiritual realm to be alert? What does it look like in relation to the coming of Christ? Well, at its most basic, alertness to Christ, preparedness for his second coming means that we must be spiritually awake. We must be awake to Christ, awake to our need for him, alert to all that he has done for us, alive to the reality that the world's ultimate hope rests solely on his shed blood and his resurrection and his coming again to make all things new. To put that more simply, to be alert to the second coming means nothing less and really nothing more than to be a genuine Christian. To have been made alive together with Christ and alive to Christ. That's one great difference between the Christian and the unbeliever, isn't it? The unbeliever, whether he is religious or not, whether he is a good citizen or a bad citizen, the unbeliever is a person who sleeps, sleepwalks through this life spiritually. He lives his life in a spiritual haze. He's not alert to the value of his soul. He's not alive to the beauty of Christ. He's not abreast of the nearness of eternity. Indeed, by that definition, some of you may judge that you are not a genuine believer in Christ because you yourself may have come in today and you know that you're living your life in a spiritual fog, only thinking about and only usually able to see that which is right in front of you, which relates to the here and now, that which is tangible. But a believer in Christ, a person who has been born again by the Holy Spirit and united to Jesus by faith, a believer is alert to things that the rest of the world cannot see or at least has put to the back of their mind. You have a servant in a house who's not really thinking about the master coming and so he's doing all sorts of things that aren't to get him ready, that aren't to welcome the master's return. But you have the servant who loves the master who is waiting and doing everything diligently to be prepared when he comes. A real Christian, a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, 
who has been born again by the Holy Spirit, has left the fog that we all live in apart from Christ. He's left the vague sight that he used to have, and now he's wide awake to eternal realities and to God. He's awake to his sin. He's awake to his need for mercy. She's awake to eternity and to the work of Jesus Christ and to the word of God and to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And consequently, these people are alert and prepared for the coming of Christ again. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians should literally watch out the windows so as not to miss the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. That's what a friend of mine used to think when he was a young man and a new believer. He would sit, literally, sit at his window at night, eyes fixed on the night sky, wanting to be as alert as possible for Christ's return so as not to be caught napping. And his heart was in the right place, but later he came to understand what I'm trying to say this morning, which is that our readiness does not consist of watching with our physical eyes for Jesus to appear on the horizon, but the alertness of our hearts and our minds to Christ and his word and his work every day of our lives so that we are trusting in him and hoping in him and waiting for him just as the overall pattern of our lives so that when he comes, we won't be caught off guard, not because we were standing at the window, but because we're living all of our life ready to meet Jesus in the presence of Jesus for the glory of Jesus as under his watchful eyes. And so I want to say to you, being prepared, being alert for the coming of Jesus is simply to really actually follow and know and love and trust Jesus every day of your life. It's to be a genuine Christian. And so I want to ask you this morning if you are, if you're awake to Jesus Christ, if you're alive to him in your soul, and if you're therefore ready for his coming again, are you keenly aware of your sin? And alert to the judgment of God that it deserves. And the God whom you've so often forgotten, whom I've ignored, whom we have turned our backs on and even despised. Are you alive to that reality? That we have sinned against God and we deserve his wrath? Are you alive to the fact that only Christ can save you? And that Christ has come to save you. That his shed blood paid to the Father as the penalty for your sins is your only hope of pardon and of redemption. And that it has been paid for all of his people, for all those who come to trust in him. Are you alert to that? Are you awake to the beauty of this arrangement and to the love of the Father who ordained such a gift, giving over his own son on your behalf? Are you alive to the loveliness of Christ who willingly set aside so many privileges and took on flesh and in the words of the hymn writer, shed his own blood for your soul? Is this precious to you? And consequently, are you alert to the fact of his coming again and the great hope that we have for those days of his making all things new? The blessing of Luke 12, 37, of Christ coming and waiting on his people, is not promised to every individual who happens to be in the house when the master returns from his night away. No. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. And so... I'm asking, are you alert to Jesus, awake to him, alive to him, 
Or are you spiritually sleepwalking through your life? I'm not asking whether you're in the master's house this morning, but whether in that house you are amongst those who are alert to his coming. Apart from Jesus, the Bible actually says that you and I are more than just asleep to God, but that we are dead to him in our trespasses and sins. And so I pray that by the power of his word this morning, God will make you alive together with Christ, make you alive to Christ, such that you will repent of your sins and embrace this Jesus by faith and live the rest of your life alert to him, alert to his purposes in the world, prepared for his coming again. Won't you do that this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit? Repent of sin, believe on Christ, even right where you sit just now. The blessing of this text comes to those who do, to those who are alert. Therefore, in the words of Ephesians 5, I say to you, awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And when you do, and when he does, this text will be your text. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. But then there's something else we need to see here in the text of Luke 12, 37. Not only that the blessing comes to those who are alert, but also that the blessed are called slaves. The blessed are called slaves in verse 37. Now, I'd imagine that some of you may have already taken note of that word slave, not only because it's a strong word, but also because depending on which translation you may be reading this morning, your version may speak of servants, while the NASB that I'm reading uses the much more challenging term, slaves. And I suspect that the reason many English versions translate verse 37 using the word servants instead of slaves is because slave is a much more difficult word to swallow, especially given the despicable national history that we have on this front. But the Greek word is indeed the word slave. It's the word for someone who is indentured to another person, someone who doesn't merely have a supervisor into whose charge he clocks in and out, but someone who is instead beholden to a master. That's the word in the Greek. And this is the word, this is the situation in life that Jesus chooses to use when he goes about describing his people in this parable in Luke 12. It's quite astonishing. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Now, that is not to say that we come into relationship with Jesus Christ by slaving on his behalf. No, no. The genius and the glory of the Christian faith is that we are saved, that our sins are atoned for, our standing with God is secured, our eternal home is purchased, not on the basis of our labor for the master, but on the basis of his labor for us. Christianity, from first to last, is predicated on Jesus serving us first, not the other way around. And we see an example of that, a beautiful example of that, when we get to the latter half of this very verse, Luke 12, 37. But it's plain elsewhere too, isn't it? Christianity is about Jesus serving us first, and not us coming into right relationship with him by the way we serve him. Because what does Paul say, for instance, about his relationship to Jesus in Galatians 2.20? Does he say that the key to the Christian life is that he loved the Son of God and gave his life in service to him? Not in the least. 
What he says is, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And for this reason, this same Paul could also pen those famous words in Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved, not as a result of works. And so don't confuse what Jesus means here by using this word slave. Your salvation, the forgiveness of your sins, your right standing in God's sight, your adoption into his family, your home in heaven, your preparedness for the second coming, none of this is predicated on your work for Jesus, on your slaving for him, or your obedience, or your sacrifice, or your love. Your salvation, your heaven, your adoption, your righteousness before a holy God is all based on his work for you. His sinless life lived in your place. His sacrificial death died in your stead. His resurrection securing your resurrection. His intercession even today at the Father's right hand. And His recreation of you when He comes again. And so we mustn't carry this word slaves to places that the Bible does not take it. Which is why in one place Jesus says that He does not call us slaves but friends. We are not slaves in the sense that we must lay down our life for our master in order for him to love us. We are friends for whom he has laid down his own life's blood. And yet, and yet, in this passage, Jesus does picture his followers as slaves, as indentured to him, as beholden to a master, not just working for an employer. And so we need to think about this word. And not least because as the comparison between slaves and friends would indicate, and even as the comparison between slaves and mere servants would indicate, this is a strong word. There's much about slavery in this world that is sinful, that is contrary to the revealed will of God, and that makes us rightly cringe when we hear that word. But let me give you a little different picture on slavery, what I think Jesus has in mind here, by telling you about a painting that hung in the living room of my friend David in Raleigh, North Carolina, back in my first year of seminary. David had a a definite artistic gift that was evident in a few different projects that were sitting around in he and his wife's apartment. And one of his creations was a simple painting of a human ear, A strange thing to have hanging on your living room wall, I think. But even stranger because this ear had a noticeable hole pierced through it. And not just a small puncture for an earring, but the painting depicted a larger hole like you might see today on a man who's putting cork in his earlobes but has temporarily removed them for one reason or another. He's got a significant hole there. And that was what the painting looked like. And so naturally I asked David like the children of Israel asked about the stones beside the Jordan River, I asked David, what means this painting? What does this painting mean to you? What does this pierced ear mean? And that's when he told me about Exodus 21, where Moses gave the ancient Israelites God's instructions for what should be done if a slave, a Hebrew slave, who was legally free to go according to the law of God, decided that he loved his master and he loved the life provided for him by that master and he didn't want to leave and he didn't want to go free. In such a case, the master was to walk with the slave over to a doorpost and place his slave's ear flush to the wood and pierce it with an awl 
creating the kind of whole that David portrayed in his artwork and signifying that the slave was willing to stay on and to serve this master for life. Now, given what we know about the cruelties of slavery in so many times and places in history, including in our own nation, this may seem to us like a far-fetched scenario, a slave voluntarily remaining on with his master. But apparently in ancient Israel, God knew that it would sometimes happen, and that may be an indication that slavery, at least sometimes in that context, looks somewhat different from what we commonly think of. But whatever we do or don't know about slavery in Israel, apparently God knew that there would be people who loved their masters and would not leave their service. And so he gave these instructions for how that was to be signified. And so David had this painting in his house, this noticeable pierced ear, the ear of a slave who loved his master and would gladly serve him for life. And he said to me that day, this is my commitment to Jesus Christ to be his slave, to gladly, voluntarily be indentured to Jesus forever. In the words of Exodus 21, I love my master. I will not go out as a free man. And here is a picture of the slavery that surely we must have in mind when we hear Jesus referring to us in this way here in Luke 12, 37. There's a sense, of course, in which we are not slaves, we are friends, John 15. There's a sense, even in Romans 8, in which we are not slaves, but sons. But there is another sense in which we do call ourselves slaves, in which we do love our master, Jesus, and are willing for him to take us to the doorpost or to the post of the cross and to place his mark upon us so that we may be in his service, so that we may call him master forever. Again, not in order that he might love or save us because of our service for him, but because he has already loved and saved us by his work for us. We don't punch a hole through our ears for Jesus like a worker punches a time clock in order to get our wages from the supervisor. We pierce our ears for him as slaves because he was pierced through for our transgressions. And because by his scourging we have already been healed. And so I ask you, before we leave this point, whether or not you are Christ's slave, whether or not you're willing to call him master, Lord, whether or not you think of yourself not as belonging to yourself, but as his property, his unquestioning servant, his slave, will you go wherever he sends you? Will you give up whatever he requires of you? Will you serve whomever he may send into your path? Indeed, even more concretely, are you obeying his commandments already given to you in his word? Are you doing what he's written in black and white? Are you repenting when you don't? Is Christ not only your friend, your savior, your brother but also your master? This is how you know whether or not you're a Christian, that Christ is friend, brother, Savior, and Lord, master. Not that our service to Jesus makes us Christians, but if we are Christians, if we have been bought by the blood of Christ, if we really are alive to Jesus in the ways that we spoke about in the prior point, then we will be awake to him 
just like the men in this parable, as his slaves, dressed to serve him, verse 35, lamps lit so that we might stay awake to wait on him. And so we're getting a good picture, are we not, of what true Christianity looks like. The Christian is one who is alert, awake, alive to his need, to his Savior, to eternity, and so on. And having been made alive and having been bought with a price, the Christian has voluntarily gone to the cross and had Christ's mark placed upon him. He has pierced his ear figuratively and committed literally to serve the master into the days of eternity. And so the blessed in our text today are rightly called slaves. And then there's one more heading under which we need to unpack this text in Luke 12:37. We need to see not only that the blessing comes to those who are alert and that the blessed are called slaves, but then in the third place we need to see especially that Christ himself will serve his slaves. Christ himself will serve his slaves. Blessed are those slaves, verse 37, whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Isn't that perhaps the most astonishing thing about our text? Not that we are called slaves, but that Jesus says that the master who represents himself at his coming again, the master will actually put on his waiter's apron and serve dinner to the slaves. What? Both for reasons of personal affinity and because I've gotten help spiritually, I keep an eye on the happenings of the the Christian church in the land of Scotland. And one of the things I've discovered is that it would appear that when the queen leaves England and heads north to stay in one of her residences in Scotland, a local pastor is sometimes invited to have an audience with the queen or even to preach before her. A high honor. And I think I may remember reading about at least one preacher who, after preaching before the queen, was invited to dine with her party. But I highly doubt when he reclined at her table, that he expected to see Elizabeth II stand up and make her way over to refill his teacup, much less to emerge from the kitchen with an apron around her waist and a platter of roast duck in her hands. And that's no slight on the queen. That's just not how it works, right? But what would it signify if she did do such a thing? If she did gird herself with the accoutrements of a waitress and begin to spread a banquet before her guests with her very own hands. That's what we have from King Jesus here in Luke 12, 37. He came the first time not to be served, but to serve. And we see the same theme, the same servanthood, even when he comes again. Truly, I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table, and will come up and wait on them. Astonishing, isn't it? Not only that we poor, ragged sinners, who were once God's enemies because of our sin, get to dine at Christ's table, but that He Himself will come and be the waiter. Just think of it. Here is the great marriage supper of the Lamb spoken about in the book of Revelation. Here is this feast that takes place after His coming again when our bodies will be made new and when we will have come to reside with our King in a new earth, in a new and physical dwelling place. So that there's every reason to think that the meal spoken of here, the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, will be a very real, tangible, edible banquet. 
And so, while we do even today enjoy a spiritual feast every time this book is open and the Word of God is spread before us like manna from heaven, I think the feast here described is one that will, in the days of, our, of eternity, fill our bellies as well as our souls. And so you might let your imagination run with that for a moment on the sorts of things that may be on the table. Turkey, roasted to perfection, suckling pig, perfectly cooked broccoli casserole, cheesecake, coal cuts, expertly sliced. If you're hearing this, you understand what you'll bring if you ever want to make a feast for me. Precisely prepared sweet tea, freshly brewed, of course. And we could go on and on, assured that whatever is on God's banqueting table in the new earth will water our mouths and leave us nothing but satisfied. But of course, the food won't be the main attraction. Just like I'm sure it wasn't for the young lady whose wedding I attended yesterday, and just like I'm sure it won't be for Julia 33 days from now, what makes the feast for the bride is that her groom is next to her at the table. And how much more when Christ, our master, our bridegroom, dines with us in that eternal day. But you see, this text goes even further than that. Because not only will our bridegroom, not only will our master be at the table, he's going to gird himself and serve the table. This is how much he loves us. Yes, we are his servants. Yes, we can even call ourselves his slaves. But the far greater truth is that he came and his coming again, he will come again, not to be served, but to serve He served us by His sinless life, lived on our behalf at His first coming. He served us by His sacrificial death, bearing our sins in His body on the cross. He is serving us even now at the right hand of the Father where He always lives to make intercession for us. And when He comes, He will be serving us still. Then, in the words of the hymn writer, then He'll call us home to heaven. At his table we'll sit down. Christ will gird himself and serve us with sweet manna all around. And I ask you, who wouldn't want to indenture himself? Who wouldn't want to name as her master a king, a bridegroom like that? And so, as we come to his table today in the Lord's Supper... We're reminded of how at his first coming, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're reminded of how the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to shed his blood and to give his back to those who struck him so that his body was broken for his people. And we come to the table of Jesus today, and we are also given a precursor in this supper of how he will feast with us in the new earth and we with him, served no longer by his slaves, but by the king himself. And so I say to you today, blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them.